Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. You can't change your plans because I don't think that that's, that's reality. We want to be empathetic and to really think about what's best for the student and try to put them in a position to have as many advantages as possible. I'm John Bullock, and this is Education on the Rocks. I don't think schools are doing enough for our kids, and I'm tired of education being a political issue. Our education system is broken. I don't understand what the problem is. The education system works just fine for me. Like I always say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But it seems like everyone is saying our education system is broken, so somebody better fix it. For years, the American public and politicians have decried the state of education in the United States. Endless reform efforts and enhanced accountability measures have stressed our public education system to the breaking point. Each week, over a glass of whiskey, our hosts tackle the education topics of the day and discuss issues that have long plagued education. This is Education on the Rocks. Welcome to Education on the Rocks. I'm your host, John Bullock, and I am joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, George Hegarty. George, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, John. Good to hear from you. It's uh, I miss seeing you, but it's good to hear from you. It is uh, kind of odd that uh, we stay in contact so much digitally that we don't uh, we don't get to see each other much. So it's nice to have this uh, this time where I can stare at your face and uh, and talk to you. Totally. Totally. I, I think that I'm gradually becoming more 2D as this pandemic rages on. Well, what I found is that uh, as my hair grows, my desire to be seen decreases. It's an inverse <laughs> inverse relationship uh, with the amount of hair that currently sits atop my head. I'm at the age where it doesn't grow in the right places anymore, so it just keeps falling out of the top. Yeah, I am I am uh, so ready for when they, uh, they allow people in barbershops and hairdressers to see clients again. Uh, I'm, I'm ready to pay a premium to get this, uh, this mane taken care of. Yeah. My 18 year old daughter gave me my first pandemic haircut and it looks very, it looks like I am in some sort of post-apocalyptic, but more like five years into it rather than <laughs> just a couple of months. <laughs> That's, that is awesome. You know, right before we got uh, shut down, uh, I had shaved off my beard. I'd had a beard for a few years and I'd shaved it off. Now I'm regretting that decision because uh, I shave every day and, and probably I should just be growing, growing one great big pandemic beard. You know, it's, well, you're running against the grain because almost everybody I see is growing something massive off their chin. And so I like that you're, <laughs> I, li I like that you're setting a new standard. Nice. So I've got some sort of like reverse hipster deal going on. Totally. Yeah. Perfect. Hey, so uh, what are you, what are you drinking today? I, I've just got some Old Forester. My grandpa used to drink it in old fashions, and so this is for him today. Oh, that's awesome. I am drinking Screwball peanut butter whiskey. It is uh, for the Misfits, Black Sheep, and Screwballs. A friend of mine bought me a bottle of this peanut butter whiskey, and I thought, this is going to be horrible. And actually, it is super tasty. And in fact, I have made something called a peanut butter and jelly old fashioned with it before. Uh, and it's uh, it's pretty phenomenal. So uh, here's to you. Yeah, cheers. Well, today we're going to be talking about the pandemic and the proliferation or perhaps the proliferation of online education. And so uh, we're, we're excited about that today. We've had great response from our previous two episodes, and we want to encourage people as you listen to this, please do share our podcast widely. We're hoping to reach an audience of people who are interested in education issues. You can simply send them to educationontherocks.com, and uh, they can listen to the podcast and learn more about the work we're trying to do uh, across the country. So with that, let's get into the show. As schools across the country scramble to put in place distance learning programs due to the coronavirus pandemic, a specter that has haunted public education since its inception has been brought into the light. And that specter is equity. All of our nation's founding documents are built upon a foundation of equality, 
And many of our most daunting challenges as a nation have been the struggle to bring everyone equitably into our national conversation. This is also true in our public schools. Today, we're going to look at how the education system is dealing with equity in the face of the coronavirus pandemic and how this present moment can potentially shape the future of public education. So take a sip, take a pause, and we'll be right back to discuss the future of public education. George, we're going to talk today about the proliferation of online education as everybody struggles to put distance learning programs into place. Uh, what is your initial take about the success people are having or the struggles people are having to effectively put into place distance learning programs? What I've been reading, and I think that um, many of us have been hit a lot over the last couple of weeks with a lot of stories from a bunch of different news outlets about how different states and different systems are tackling this. And there's a real diverse opinion about what distance learning should look like for our students and how to adequately, you know, measure what we want them, what we want them to be gaining during this um, extended school closure for the students across the country. And so, you know, my initial takeaway is just that we are still in that, um, stew pot kind of mentality where people are trying all sorts of things and some are probably more um, successful than others right now but trying to find systems that work for a majority of our students is going to be really challenging and i'm really interested in the interest in, in to be honest a little bit nervous about what the outcome of this extended school closure is going to be for our students uh, particularly those are who are in more challenging um, financial circumstances. How about you? Well, I think equity is going to be a key component in this, uh, trying to find a way to make sure that our most vulnerable students and their families, one, have their basic needs met, but two, have access to the technology and the support necessary to be able to access much of the learning. But moreover, are they in a position to even learn, right? Maslow's hierarchy of needs is really clear. We need to make, we need to meet people's basic needs, food, water, shelter, um, healthcare before we can even start talking about safety and security. And we've got to have that security met before we can even talk about learning. So we've got to think long and hard about how much emphasis we are putting on this distance learning. One of the things I've been telling groups that I've been speaking to is that we've got to remind ourselves that this is not uh, online learning. We have not transitioned in a matter of weeks to every student doing online learning. Online school in and of itself is an entirely different pedagogy with different goals and areas of focus. Nor is this homeschool. Homeschooling also is a different style, a different pedagogy uh, with its own goals and, and areas of focus. And so this is really crisis teaching and learning. And in Oregon, the focus has been on providing care, connectivity, uh, and continuity of learning. And so we are attempting in Oregon, at least, to find ways that it's all about making connections and caring for people. And I think that's the beginning to, to look at equity is figure out what does every individual need in order to successfully navigate this difficult time. You make a good point in, in that I think a lot, a lot of the assumptions in the media and the pieces that I've been reading is that distance learning is equated to online learning. And so it is techn technologically dependent. And I think that one of the things we have to do is to consider how that's not the case uh, so that we can reach as many students as possible, uh, regardless of what, you know, their ability to connect and have reliable connectivity and data and to be able to access, you know, data rates that allow them to to be able to learn using some of the tools that we're expecting them to. And we have to think beyond that and think about that we are supplying as much education as possible from a distance, literally. And so what, what is that going to look like, like you said, for each student and each family? And part of that is simply rethinking what school looks like and the purpose of education. When we think about the traditional school day that starts in some places at seven, some at eight, some at nine, and goes until two, three, or four in the evening, Part of that design is about the social need to have places for students, for young people to be during the day. Now that everyone is at home, I think it would be folly to think that students should be spending uh, six or eight hours a day on the computer, online, engaged in learning. We know, for example, when we teach students one-on-one, -on -one, that it takes less time than if we teach students one-on-30. 
And so this entire uh, change or shift to distance learning has to keep in mind that time is truly a variable, that each student will need their own unique set of time uh, to tackle their own unique learning. And that rethinking, I think, is a major shift that people have to keep in mind because if parents and families are out there thinking that their students should wake up at the same time they did during the school year and immediately log on and go to period one or period two or period three or however their school is structured, I think that's flawed thinking because learning happens in so many different ways and in such different time intervals. Uh, and now that really the access is 24-7, it is ubiquitous, that people have to rethink how we're looking at what we want students to do when it comes to school and think about it in terms of what do we want them to learn. Yeah, totally. And when we look at programs that have been intentionally designed to be online learning based, that those programs are built upon that kind of flexibility. And so for for schools in this in these circumstances, not to respond to that immediately, to me is flabbergasting because it seems you know the one the one thing that we can all agree upon it would seem is that this is no longer school as usual from an 8 to 3 perspective but it seems that there is some resistance to that in that kind of the idea that time and i agree with you with what you say that time needs to be that time in that from the morning to the afternoon has to be organized and subdivided in such a way that it resembles school even though most of our homes, uh, I mean, mine, for example, and I've been in education my whole life, does not look like a school at all. Right. It's it's a it's a home. It's a place where there's there are opportunities for families to gather around meals, or families to work independently, or families to watch uh, TV, or engage in other levels of entertainment. It's not set up to be a school. And when folks approach it as such, I think it, it can lead to some some really challenges for people. I think those challenges are clearly exacerbated when we're talking about families uh, that are that are experiencing economic insecurity, food insecurity, housing insecurity. Because not only do they have those battles to face, they also have this concept of school that they have to face. And what we know for from some research that we've looked at in preparation for the show is that many of those families who are from school districts or school areas where there's predominantly uh, lower income families, that they're actually getting less distance learning provided for them than in their peers who have or, or who are from higher income areas, right? Yeah, we looked at an article by Juliana Horowitz for the Pew Fact Tank that just kind of explored the, the, it was almost from when I looked at the statistics, they were almost inverted as to what I would expect where you have upper income parents are reporting that their students are getting a lot of education and a lot of educational support. And those, those parents who are reporting from the lower end of the income groups are saying that their students a lot might have next to nothing. And, you know, to me, it's really ironic where I would say, at least as a as an educator myself, I'm in a position to be able to supply my daughter with opportunities that I wouldn't have if I were going to work, you know, if I were being still called out to work in industry or some of the occupations where people are still being called in to work full days and then the students are kind of left on their own for the entire day. And and I'm really worried, to be honest, about what the long term is effect what the long term effects of this are on our really young students, because I can't, I can't even imagine what it would be like to, to offer a distance learning curriculum to a third or fourth grader and what that day entails. Right. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a first grade teacher and she was explaining that uh, when she has these, you know, 25 student zoom class meetings that they have, that these students understand technology to the point where they can look and be online but they haven't developed a sense of social gathering that helps them understand what's happening. And so she will say to a student something to the effect of, hey, Jimmy, I see you have your puppy with you today. And about half the students will say, I don't have a puppy. My name's not Jimmy. Right. And so the, the context of this distance learning and trying to replicate the classroom is nearly impossible because if these students were all sitting in a in a circle, a carpet circle, you know, listening to a book being read, they would know that she was talking to Jimmy and not to them. But because of the online interaction, they don't they don't know that. And when I think about trying to have distance learning for 
you know, K through three or K through five, it, that strikes me as being extremely difficult. Um, my, my niece is in kindergarten and my brother and his wife are, are working diligently to try and find ways to keep her engaged in things around the house and things out in the yard. And, and they go on field trips every day through natural geographic and other, other tools. And I think she's fortunate because she's got two parents with college degrees who are, you know, committed to her learning and who both work from home. And so she has the the time and support. But if you have children in families that just don't have that, right, that that's not part of what is existing right now. And the number of people that that's happening to is growing, right? With a, I, I read uh, yesterday, right, that we had unemployment rates that have reached the level where they have basically eliminated every job that was created since 2008, the last time we had a recession. So we have a bunch of people out of work and a bunch of people experiencing economic insecurity. And when we go back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if we don't have security, we can't learn. And so we're in this environment where we've got a, a bunch of kids living in, in places where they can't learn. And, and as such, the gap is going to grow. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. I was talking with a local Latinx activist and she was relating the fact that a lot of the families that she's working with feel a level of insecurity that is so high that um, they're afraid to leave the house from the perspective of whether they're probably relying on mythology, but it's a real fear for them that if they go out and get sick, that they won't be treated because of their status in our hospitals. And so for that family to consider reading, writing, and arithmetic, it seems to me that that's just absolutely unfathomable, that there, the other needs are, there's no way that accessing kind of what we would call a typical curriculum would be possible. And, and so I think we probably see that across the country and not only, certainly not only regionally, in ways that the disparities that we have been trying, you know, from an equity perspective, we've been trying to close these gaps in performance in students for the last, I mean, I've been in education for over 20 years and that, that's been our mission. And this moment, I think, is really pivotal for us to take a look because it brings, like you said in the intro, it brings this into such kind of clarity that we need to, I think we need to address it in a time of, uh, in a time of crisis. And so what we do now is critical, not only for this year's graduating class, but for the next 15 years. Yeah. As we think about this year's graduating class, uh, there's obviously a great deal of sadness and mourning going on about the things they've lost, but I want to move past that and not to minimize it, but move past it to think about what that looks like for these students that are thinking about going to college. Uh, there's some reports out that this economic collapse that's associated with the coronavirus and the fear of the virus itself is causing some students to rethink their college plans. And it's particularly impacting those students who would be the first person in their family to go to college. And so, uh, how can folks think about that and navigate that as we as we look beyond just the end of the school year and we look into the fall? You know, it's interesting because I think that this is a place where schools can make a huge difference for their students, that this is a time where really kind of the curricular needs of our graduating class should be put on the back burner because one would assume that we'd done our job as a school and the students had done their job by the second half of their final term in high school. And so we need to connect to them. But I equally said, I think this is the vital time to connect with them to make sure that they are engaging um, with their futures and to give them wise counsel, which isn't necessarily to say you can't change your plans because I don't think that that's, that's reality. We want to be empathetic and to really think about what's best for the student and try to put them in a position to have as many advantages as possible going forward. Because what we know when there is kind of, especially for first generation college students and underrepresented students, when there is a gap in the education, for instance, a gap year, it's less likely that those students are going to return, return to higher education. And we're at a critical moment. And so I'm wondering what you think are ways that the schools can address this. I think that one of the ways that 
college and universities can work to address this is guarantee admission to students, right? So students who they had previously admitted, they should guarantee that admission and say that regardless of what happened at your school in the second semester, we're welcoming you as a student. I also think that- uh, And you think to do that explicitly so that it's not implied that they need to reach out and do that. Yeah, I think I think that uh, that's something that college universities should do right now is is contact each of those graduates to whom or pending graduates that they've offered admission to previously. And if that admission was conditional on uh, finishing courses or conditional upon achieving a diploma, they should guarantee that admission that, that no student should be held responsible for something like this that they can't control doing that re-energizes students to the idea of going to college. The second thing I think they need to do is to be explicit about the financial aid that is there and how that financial aid will work to the student's advantage. We know that many students are scared off from university study because of the cost or the perceived cost. And I had a really interesting conversation with uh, some folks uh, involved in higher ed in the state. And we were talking about this idea of the fear of debt amongst college students. And they were talking about students who are afraid of taking out sixty, eighty, a hundred thousand dollars in student loans. And I said, I think you're missing it. We have students who are afraid of taking out five thousand dollars in student loans. They've been told that that level of debt is bad. You should not take debt. And so it's the five thousand or the ten thousand that's scaring students away from college. And certainly there's some that the sixty or eighty or hundred. And I'm not commenting on that, but I think we've missed the boat if we don't explain to students exactly how their financial aid package is working for them so that they can go to school. Because we know right now that financial stress for families is one of the pre- one of the preeminent reasons why students won't matriculate to college. As challenging as it can be for schools to to meet those students' needs right now. Those conversations need to start, you know, with classroom teachers and then move on to counselors and whatever other support systems the schools have in place in order to make sure that students feel supported. Because I think that we as we as educators are in a position to be able to supply answers that students might not have. They might not ask those questions, but if we can stand with them and continue to say, we've got you, we've got you, we've got you and reach out and do the legwork. This isn't for me, this isn't the time to ask students to ask seniors in high school to adult up, you know, for lack of a better term. This is a time for us to stand with them and to support them uh, as much as possible to, to make their transition possible. Because I think that's where we are institutionally is it's not a question of making a transition easier, but it's whether the transition will occur or not. I think that some of the numbers that I, I saw in a uh, political story this week uh, by Bianca Kinlatin, she, she wrote that about 63% of students said they would still enroll in college, but were worried about whether they could attend the school of their choice, while 17% said their plans had changed. And I think those numbers are really telling and and the, it shows one how deeply affect uh, how deeply the pandemic is affecting all of american society and i think the numbers about unemployment that you cited are totally indicative of that but also i think those numbers sometimes don't speak to the real students who haven't don't have a support system in place at home where parents understand incurring debt and student loans in order to get degrees and advanced degrees, that those students are at a real disadvantage because it's really easy, as you kind of said, to look at the price tag and say, you know what, I'm not going to do that right now, even though you know our students are also staring at what for me is since 2008, like you said, the worst job market imaginable. Interestingly, traditionally, in times of economic downturn, we see increases in college enrollment. And when the economy is going well, we see a decrease in college enrollment. I think that this is going to be the opposite of that. I think we are going to see with this economic downturn, we're also going to see a decrease in college enrollments. And I think it's attributable to to two things. One is People wanting to stay closer to home, people having to contribute to the family economically, people being afraid of the virus, right? So this sense of, I need to be with my family right now. I don't need to go away to school. But the second is 
the online learning component. So students who would typically go to university and have that college and university experience are now going to enroll and might be in online classes for say goodbye to your credit card rewards greedy corporate mega stores led by walmart and target are pushing for a law in congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets the durbin marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it if you love your credit card rewards tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Their first term or their first and second term or their entire first year. We, we don't know yet. But the idea that why would I spend money and go away to take classes online when I could take classes online from my own home and I could pick whatever university I want, or I could put it off. And I think that that's one of the, the risks of online learning is that it because it's so accessible, it isn't necessarily valued as much. You can always get to it, right? You can put it off because it's always going to be there. Whereas in a traditional college environment with a traditional college schedule, you can't put it off. I mean, I know some of us did. I mean, if you yeah. if you if you were in my uh, chemistry one hundred and one class uh, at Oregon State in in uh, the late eighties, uh, I put that off every week. So, <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, typically, because you're you're there, you're going to class, you're doing things. But if it's online and it's twenty four seven, it's it's much more difficult to to motivate students to engage in it. And I think a lot of that is about, and those are kind of the immeasurables of a college education. And it's something we've been talking about in the K-12s as well, is that that sense of community, I really feel is vital. And that when you are on a campus, and even if it is Chem 101, there's a sense of we're all in this together. And as we're logging on, and I think even, even those of us who are professionals are kind of feeling there is an isolating element to what we're going through right now. And the online courses that I've taken for kind of continuing ed type of stuff, to me, many of them are designed, and I don't think I'm missing the mark on this, that many of them are designed to be really transactional in nature and that it is, you know, you're seeking X for taking that course, where I think that that often is very different particularly when students get involved in their majors on undergraduate campuses, that they, that they are really invested in it emotionally and intellectually. And I think that that's, that energy gets lost sometimes when you're dealing with a two-dimensional uh, online curriculum. I agree with you. I don't know if I've ever told you this or not, but a few years ago, for the purposes of research, I taught online with one of the major online school providers in the I country. Didn't know that. Yeah, I, I wanted to get a sense uh, as to what that environment looked like. And so I applied and was hired to teach uh, online for, for one of these companies on a part-time basis because I wanted to learn how did this work. And what was shocking to me is the number of students that enrolled in online courses because they thought, number one, they would be easier than a traditional course. And number two, because it was transactional for them. What do I need to do in order to get this credit? And so I was working with high school students from around the country in uh, language arts courses and health education courses. And almost to a student, the entire focus was on what is it that I need to do to get this credit? And what is the minimal amount of effort I can put into it? 
Now, I say that anecdotally because I don't want to cast a disparaging light upon people who have done great work in online education. Right. And just like in the traditional system, there are people that are doing amazing work and there are students who are benefiting in an amazing way. So I don't want my mentions on Twitter to get blown up by people who think I'm bashing online <laughs> education because I'm not. What I'm saying, though, is that if we're going to make this massive transition toward online education, we have to be aware of what some of the ways in which traditional students view online education. And we have not been set up uh, as a society for that, right? Because schools have played such a huge part in the community. And I think as I, as I look at what college students are facing, my daughter's in college right now, and all of her courses are now online for this term. And one of her debates is, should I stay here in my college town with my friends and pay for rent? Or should I come home and stay at my house with my family uh, and just do the online courses from here? And that is a, a major uh, decision point and a major shift for many students is this idea of I'm living an independent life. I'm in college, but now I might as well you know, come home. I, in fact, I, I, it was great in a in another podcast that I'm working on uh, for my local community. I, I interviewed a uh, somebody today whose whose son moved back from college, and and one of the things that happened to them is that now they've got a a six foot two inch, two hundred forty pound college student who's eating them out of house and home after they were empty nesters for about uh, eighteen months. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, transition back, right and. And, uh, you know, and so, so these are some of the things we have to think about as we make this massive transition to, to online courses. And I think where I want to go with that is this idea that so students who have many more responsibilities to their family and to, to provide care, to provide income, to provide support, while online learning may be attractive because it's always there, it can often get set aside and never get completed because it's always there. Versus that same student going away to college where all they have to focus on is the coursework. Yeah, there, there have been a couple of stories. Um, I think it was the New York Times. I don't want to misquote it where it was what they were looking at were students who did return home because their campuses closed entirely. And the different circumstances of going home to a middle class or an upper, upper middle class home and doing online learning versus uh, one of the the other student that was featured uh, was from Southern Florida. And so she was back from, and it was an elite Northeastern university that she went back and she was working in her parents' food truck as well. And so her life changed dramatically by leaving campus where the student, the other students wasn't. And, and I think that that even on a college campus where Students, you know, have kind of that they've transitioned out of high school and so they have chosen their learning, they're owning it. But when when we change the circumstances so dramatically, dramatically like we are now, there's not a ton of thought that has gone into how that is going to affect everyone, you know, your entire your entire student population. And, you know, a fundraiser for a university down in California that I'm connected to is happening over the next couple of days and they're raising money and they're, they're honestly they're trying to raise twenty five hundred dollars in order to supply their graduate students with adequate internet so that they can teach their courses uh remotely and that to me was a shocking number you know when you think about oh my gosh that's where we are and to continue not only for our students to supply them with education but also for um, the people who are teaching those students to keep them prepared for this, that that was, you know, it was really enlightening for me to read that. Yeah, it's amazing when you think about what it requires to try and provide education to everyone. And it, it is things like making sure that the people that are teaching them have access to the technology and resources. And it's things about making sure that the students have time and places to learn. I mean, you were telling me a story about a student you work with who the only place they could get peace and quiet was in the backseat of a car in their driveway uh, in order to engage in their learning. We've got to think about that as we make a dramatic shift that there are not everybody and in fact, fewer people than we even think have a quiet place in their house where they can sit and engage in 
in the learning that they need to do. No, I agree. And, and I think it is vital as this, as the school national school closure extends that we think in those terms, because I firmly believe that a percentage of our kids will have the learning gains that they will always have, but it's really important and vital for us to consider how to adequately support. And then when we do come back to school campuses, how do we not highlight um, the gaps that have maybe sprung up because of uh, inequities in learning environments, in socioeconomics, so that students don't feel isolated and ostracized based on the fact that no, they weren't engaging, like you said earlier, in six to eight hours of structured curriculum per day, that that's not something that brands them for the rest of their school careers and then extends well beyond uh, education. So let's talk for a moment about the future of this. As in some of my uh, speaking engagements over the past couple of weeks, uh, one of the key questions that I get asked every time I talk is, what are schools going to do about the exacerbated gap that's going to exist in learning when students return in the fall. Frankly, I've been of two minds of it. One mind has been schools and teachers are going to do what they've always done, which is determine what students need, build a trajectory to get there, and adapt as necessary. Because students come to our schools every single day in different places, with different needs, with different abilities, with different strengths, with different weaknesses, from different family situations and economic situations. The role of a school and teachers is to assess where students are, determine where they need to go and build a trajectory to get there. And so in that sense, I think it's going to be somewhat similar to what we've always done. Now, there might be greater gaps and we might have to create more more trajectories for students, right, that are, that are differing. And so I think that in some sense, schools are equipped for that. But in the other sense, we're going to struggle if we try and run school as usual. Because, for example, a student who is in Algebra 1 right now, who is getting ready to transition to Algebra 2, if we think we can just start our Algebra 2 curriculum where it traditionally would start, assuming that every student had successfully matriculated from Algebra 1, we are sorely mistaken. We have to build in some way to provide for those students who didn't get access or weren't able to successfully complete the curriculum that was provided. And we have to do so in a way that doesn't say, well, I guess we got to go backwards. We just have to build from where where we are. And I think that that's going to be maybe a bigger struggle is the idea that when this returns, whenever that happens, it can't be school as usual in the way we've always done it. You know, and I think that that, your point to kind of that transitioning from where we traditionally think uh, school ends in June to where it begins in August or September, that how we institutionally, how we handle that is vital. And we can't talk about it, from my perspective anyway, we can't talk about it as a loss and that we're behind. And so we're going to have to double down on this or double down on that because because that's going to just exacerbate the gaps that exist. I think that this is the time to emphasize compassion with our students and that connection that um, schools and uh, schools kind of institutionally down to the classroom level, we need to say to our students that we've got this and we've got your backs and we're going to get you to where you need to go instead of Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers this kind of mad rush of, oh, we're starting a marathon. 
we're starting a half hour behind where we thought we were going to. And so we're going to have to really crush it for the first, you know, for the first half. And anyone who's ever run before, which I've never run a marathon, but I am assuming that if you run too hard in the first half, you're not going to make the finish. Now, before I talk about the educational impact, I had just assumed a guy like you had run a marathon. No. But now you're, you're telling me you haven't. Only half. I, uh, I'm i not Bill. I'm, I'm too tall, I think, to run that distance. <laughs> I got to guarantee you that nobody's ever looked at me and thought that I've run a marathon. While you might be too tall, I am what I would like to refer to as too stout uh, to uh, to complete that feat. So um, that's something I didn't know about you, George. I didn't know you'd run a marathon. I just assumed that you had. Anyway, I we've, we've gone off topic, and that's my fault, and I'm going to blame it on the screwball peanut butter whiskey at this point. Uh, but what I, where I think we're going with that is this idea that if we think that we have to make up everything that we've perceived that we've lost, then we're going to lose more. Uh, as a coach, right? I used, to, I used to coach a fair bit. I always would want to talk to my athletes about making sure that today's loss doesn't make tomorrow a loss as well, right? And the idea being that just because this didn't work, we can't dwell on it so much that it means tomorrow doesn't work as well. And that's a fear I have when we get back to traditional, uh, the traditional school year, uh, is that people are going to try and make up for lost time, as it were. And in doing so, we're going to make it even worse because our students aren't going to learn any faster than they used to. They're not going to learn under more pressure than they used to. They're still going to be the same or similar type of learners that need time, they need compassion, they need to let the learning ruminate with them for a while. We can't speed round this. And so we're going to have to maybe even go slower to get everybody acclimated rather than try and push everything into it. So there's a, an old saying about, uh, you know, 10 pounds of stuff in a five pound bag, right? We we can't do that. Not It, it won't work. No. And, and, I, and I think that all the educational research supports you in that. And it's just a question of under under the pressure pressure and the stress. And, and I think it's just like universities that you alluded to earlier, reaching out to their admitted students and saying, don't worry, we've got you. We're gonna, you're in, we've got you. No problem. We understand this is a pandemic. I think that uh, states need to say the same things to their schools and maybe relax some of the pressure, the kind of the indicators, the performance indicators that have pressured schools into pushing students beyond their performance, you know, beyond their capacity in terms of growth, annual growth, that this is the time for everyone to back off. And I think that we will, if we do that, I think we can ameliorate some of the, some of the effect of what, it's a lie to say that there's going to be no effect of this. I think all of us, Regardless of whether you're a kindergartner or whether you're 85 years old, we are going to be long-term affected from this major shift in our lives. Agreed. And as we get ready to wrap up this conversation, let's shift to a positive note. What do you think are some of the gains that are going to come out of this for education? What are some things that are going to be positive changes in the world of education because we are experiencing this crisis together? Number one is I think that we're, we will collectively move to a place where I think we will better be able to assess what matters and what really leads to student growth and to a meaningful education. And I think we're getting there. I mean, the conversations that I've had and using office hours, uh, that those conversations where students are able to come in and kind of in time that otherwise would be busy and would be cluttered with other people around, that those students are able to ask questions that they wouldn't otherwise be able to ask. And we can have a real conversation. And I can feel those students connecting to their educations in new and meaningful ways. And I think that that, for me, is the takeaway that we really can move toward increased personalization based on this and for meeting all students respectfully where they are and moving them forward from that place, as opposed to assuming that this is the start line. If you're not there, you're behind and this is the finish line. And if you don't make it, you've failed. And I think that's a, a great outcome for, for this change is that, is that we do become more personalized and people do have more time individually to work with students and connect with students. 
One of the changes that I think that we will see that I'm somewhat excited about is that since really the advent of the internet, the role of the teacher has substantially changed. Prior to the internet, the teacher was essentially the holder of knowledge. You, you certainly could get your own knowledge. You could read, you could, you could go on and you could go pull out an encyclopedia and get an encyclopedia entry. You could read books. You could, you could learn on your own, but a teacher was typically considered the holder of knowledge, right? They were the person who had studied everything about, uh, the World War One and World War Two, and they were going to educate you on that because they held the knowledge. The advent of the internet changed all that because now there is not a piece of information that people cannot access on their own 24-7. And we've talked for years about the role of the teacher changing to be a facilitator of learning rather than being what has been called a sage on the stage. And this crisis and going to online or distance learning is laying bare the idea that the teacher's role is a critical one, but it is not as the holder of knowledge. It is the facilitator of learning that students can access the information, but the role of the teacher is to help them interpret and make meaning from that information. And that change, I think, is going to have significant ramifications when we get back to school uh, as we know it. If teachers and students and families and communities will embrace the idea that learning can happen around the clock, anywhere, and that the value of teachers is the relationship they build with students and the ability they have to help them make critical decisions and the ability to make meaning out of all the information they have. There is more information out there today than anyone could potentially digest in millions of lifetimes. And so our job as educators is to help students digest that information that they have and make the best meaning they can out of it. And I think that's something that we're going to see transpire with this change is this is going to accelerate that changing role of the educator. I couldn't agree more. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation about the future of education and the way in which the coronavirus is impacting uh, students in K-12 and at the university level. And uh, it's been great to, uh, to spend some time with you talking about that. We're going to take a pause and take a sip, and we'll be back with After the Ice Melts. And now for a segment we like to call After the Ice Melts. We spent some time talking about educational issues and having a glass of whiskey. And now as we get to the bottom of the glass, it's time to think about what lies ahead. So, George, for you, what are you going to do after the ice melts? You know, I think uh, I'm planning a ride. One of the outcomes of this pandemic that's been really great, I have a daughter who's graduating high school this year. And life has moved really, really quickly the last couple of years for sure. And, you know, we've been able to slow down. And so we've been riding our bikes together and I've been for my entire adulthood. I, that's the place where I go to think and kind of unwind is just to go on a long bike ride. But she and I have been going together lately for 20 and 25 mile bike rides. And it has been the most amazing transformation uh, for our relationship. And I just love it. It's kind of, I know that you have a college age daughter. It's that transition from the purely, you know, paternal relationship to kind of that friendship and camaraderie. And it's been really amazing. That's really awesome. Yeah, it's incredible that transition from uh, having a, a child in your home to having an adult child. And that that relationship is incredible, particularly for dads and daughters. I mean, I just cherish the relationship I have with with my daughter and having her as an adult and somebody that uh, is a friend, but uh, is still my daughter is a, is a pretty awesome thing. And I, 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 I'm excited for you and your journey as, uh, as your daughter heads off to college. So that's yeah, a cool way you. to start that. Thank you. I know we've talked about it a lot. It's, it's funny for our audiences that, uh, you know, I've kind of experienced a lot of fatherhood through you just a few years in advance. And so our friendship has kind of bonded us in that way because we're both the fathers of daughters. And so it's been a pretty amazing experience. What about you? What are you doing after the ice melts? Well, I've thought about a couple of things I was going to talk about. One is that, um, I am envious of those of you that have maintained or built fitness routines during this, this time I have tried. I mean, I've tried, I've, 
I like working out on my treadmill. I like walking and playing video games, and and I I got to get in a running shape. And you can do I, it at the same time, which is I can do it at the same pretty, time. That's pretty amazing. I can play my video games and walk at the same time. But uh, a friend of mine challenged me to get ready for a five k. Which for those of you that are uh, are good athletes, uh, you know you can you can uh, guffaw at the idea of a five k being a stretch, but. Um, I'm, I'm going to start trying to get myself ready to do a 5K. And so that's that's one thing. But, you know, one of the things that's been really awesome for me about uh, this this time and something I'm looking forward to after this ice melts is that uh, we've been making dinner together uh, every uh, just about every night. And so we're getting ready to make uh, some uh, this chicken dish we make where we we use some panko and we roast some vegetables and we spend some time together and probably drink a, a bottle of wine. And so I, I'm really looking forward to that. And, uh, after the ice melts, that's, uh, that's what I'm going to be doing. Oh, that sounds great. Well, thanks as always, my friend. It's uh, it's great to catch up with you and, uh, we'll be back next week with more education on the rocks for those of you who are listening. Thanks so much for, uh, for indulging us with your time. And we hope that you've enjoyed this. If you have, please be sure to tell your friends. We want to make sure that uh, everybody engages in this, uh, discussion about education on the rocks. You can either talk about uh, what's going on in education or you can critique our, uh, types of whiskey. Whatever you want to do, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can get us on Twitter. You can find us at our website, educationontherocks.com. But however you engage, we appreciate it. And uh, until we talk to you next time, uh, take a sip and take a pause uh, and enjoy life. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Education on the Rocks. You can connect with us on Twitter. George is at George underscore Hegarty. And I am at Jay Bullock Speaks. If you enjoyed our podcast, please tell your friends. And please give us a rating on iTunes and leave a comment. Until then, look for us next week as we continue to discuss education on the rocks. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.